0: former professional poker player, decision-making expert, best-selling author, and regular guest on the show. Annie's latest masterpiece is her book entitled, How to Decide, Simple Tools for Making Better Choices. How to Decide follows her bestseller, Thinking and Bets, shifting from highlighting causes of bad decisions to discussing a process for making better ones. Our conversation covers the six steps to outline a comprehensive decision framework, Factors that determine when to shorten that lengthy decision process, the power of negative thinking, decisions in groups, and work with committees. Without further ado, please enjoy another fascinating conversation with Annie Duke. Annie, so great to have you on again.
1: It's nice to be here. I feel excited to be a second-timer. Wait, a third-timer.
0: So your new book is coming out.
1: It is. It is very soon, September 15th.
0: Why don't we walk through a little bit how you came about taking on the onerous task of writing another book?
1: Like in a meta way? Because I'm nuts? Or?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, whatever you think.
1: Because I feel like that's really the answer. Okay, so I think first, let me just explain. The book is called How to Decide, Simple Tools for Making Better Choices. And It's meant to be a book that's really showing readers how you go about making good decisions and sort of what goes into creating a really good decision process. So I'd written the first book, Thinking in Bats, which was trying to think about how the uncertainty that's so ever present in poker and making decisions in that environment could create a really nice conversation between that and cognitive science. And what was being done in terms of behavioral economics and behavioral psychology, decision making. And I wanted to talk about that conversation. And I kind of consider that book as a love letter to uncertainty, to really try to get people to be excited about it, to embrace it, to think about how it influences your life and what you might do, to wrap your arms around it and why that would make your life better. So that I think about that as kind of like a big idea of that book. And as I started interacting with people who had read that book, the most common question that I got was, but how? I get it. I believe you. I'm all in. Uncertainty, luck, hidden information, all of the stuff that makes our judgment so subjective that untethers the quality of outcomes from the quality of decisions that I can feel having this influence on the way I make decisions. I hear you and I get it. I really, really love it. But I don't know how. I don't know how to make decisions in that environment. And I just felt like I had kind of left a lot on the table. Like I I had left a lot that I hadn't said as I kind of walked away from the process of that book. And I wanted to write something that was more practical in terms of what it could hand to the reader when they come away, that they could feel not just like they kind of know broadly the kinds of things you would want to think about in order to become a better decision maker, but they would actually know how to implement that in their own decision process.
0: Well, that seems like a great lead in. The book starts with this notion of kind of a six-step framework. And why don't you just dive in and walk through it and we'll go from there.
1: So first of all, let me say that it doesn't quite start with the notion of the six-step framework because I think that appears in chapter four. I only want to say that because I think certainly people who are familiar with thinking in bets are going to notice that it starts in the same place that thinking in bets does, which is with resulting, but looking at it through kind of a broader lens of what I call the paradox of experience. And the paradox of experience is that experience is certainly necessary in order to become a better decision maker, but it's in no way sufficient. And in fact, the paradox is that any individual experience that you might have can actually interfere with learning. So people are familiar with the resulting concept that we sort of look at the quality of the outcome and we want to derive the quality of the decision from that in a way that actually is not particularly helpful, particularly in the short run. But then I also really go a little more deeply into hindsight bias, which is this idea that you kind of misremember your experiences as well in terms of adding to the ruckus. And so it kind of starts in that place only because I think that you can't build out or understand what the process is for, without understanding this problem of the paradox of experience. Why is it that experience is interfering so severely with our ability to become better decision makers? What I really kind of get to after this re-exploration of resulting and then really taking hindsight bias on as a little bit of a new topic, is that the way that we have to really start thinking about our experiences, in order to become better as a decision-maker, is to really embrace the idea of counterfactual thinking. So we have to be looking back and trying to put ourselves at the moment of the decision. Think about what did you know at the time? What options were you considering? And what were the ways in which those options could have turned out? Or for any particular option that you did choose, What are the different futures that could have unfolded by that? In other words, that's really the essence of counterfactual thinking is considering something that didn't happen but could have, or a state of the world that isn't the state of the world that we're in right now, but is a possible state of the world that could have occurred. So that's kind of what I'm arguing is that you have to consider the things that might have been in order to become a great decision maker. Really, the best way to solve this is to not to try to look back and reconstruct all of that. But to actually do that looking forward as you're entering to new decisions, if we can make the process going forward better, we're going to be a lot better off. So that brings us to the six steps, because what we're trying to do is capture that essence of counterfactual thinking, but in a forward looking way, which really becomes thinking about scenario planning. What are the different scenarios that might unfold from a particular option under consideration? So the six steps basically go like this for an option that you're considering, Think about what the possibilities are. What are the futures that could reasonably unfold from that option that you're considering? But then you have to do more. The second step is you have to think about what the payoffs are for that option. So you have to consider for any future that might unfold, will it advance me toward my goals or will it cause me to retreat away from them? So you have to do that. Then you have to think about what's the probability of any of those things occurring. So this obviously broadly allows you to calculate an expected value. And then basically for any option that you're considering, you now do that over again. And then you actually have an apples to apples comparison. Because what I've considered then is if I think about an option that I'm thinking about and I'm thinking about the different futures that could unfold, the things that advance me toward my goal would be the upside potential. The things that cause me to retreat away from my goal are the downside potential. So now I can balance those out. I can think about what the probability of me observing the downside is. What's the probability of me observing the upside? And now given whatever my goals or values are, I actually have a way to compare options, which is what I want to circle back and do. So really what the heart of the book is doing is trying to help you to figure out how do you actually execute on that process.
0: It'd be nice if we all could put numerical probabilities on the decision tree and actually have an expected value and be so easy to make the right decision. But most of the time, we don't really know what those probabilities are. So how do you start to think about that?
1: Yeah, that's really most of the decisions that we make. We can think about that we're deciding in some way, sometimes more, sometimes less behind a veil of ignorance, that we know some of the things that might occur, but not all of them. And we may not be able to assign probabilities to those things, at least not in terms of an exact point forecast. Like if I flip a coin, I know exactly what the outcomes are. There are three heads, tails or landing on the side. And then I know what the probabilities of those things happening are. So landing on the side is approaching zero and the rest is about 50-50. So in this particular case, I actually have perfect knowledge despite the fact that there's an influence of luck. So I want to just sort of take a moment to think about the two sources of uncertainty, because we're talking about the second source. The first source is luck, which is even if I know what all the possibilities are and I can assign probabilities to those, it doesn't mean that I know which outcome I'm going to observe. So when I flip a coin, I don't know whether I'm going to observe heads or tails on that particular coin flip. I only know these things in the long run. And, and that's a problem in and of itself, right? That's really kind of the resulting problem, which is, I think that if I call heads, and it lands tails, that somehow that makes my decision wrong, which it really doesn't have anything to do with it, because I don't really control the outcome. If I'm playing poker, I could have a hand that's going to win 98% of the time, 2% of the time, I'm going to lose. By definition, I'm going to observe the 2%, 2% of the time. But I don't know when. I don't know if that's going to happen on the next one. I just don't. So that's a problem of luck. Let's set that aside for a second. What I focus on much more in this book is actually the hidden information problem that our knowledge is incomplete. It's not particularly sturdy. And we need to sort of address that and think about how that starts to sort of muck things up. So whatever that process is that we're building, the six-step decision process, that's gonna be built on top of a foundation, which is the things that you know. What are your beliefs? What are your models of the world? What is your knowledge? And that foundation has a whole bunch of problems with it. Two main ones. One is that some of the things you believe are inaccurate. Let's call that cracks in the foundation. And the other is that the foundation itself is not particularly broad, meaning that there's a whole bunch of stuff you don't know. So your foundation's pretty flimsy. It's not super beefy because we really don't know a lot in comparison to the stuff we know. I think The stuff we know could pretty much fit on a head of a pin. And the stuff we don't know is like the size of the whole universe. So we have this problem, like this process is built on top of that foundation. Our decision house is on top of this foundation that has all of these weaknesses because we don't know so much. And then some of the stuff that we do know is inaccurate. This brings us to this problem. A lot of times we just don't know exactly what the possibilities are And we may not know exactly what the probabilities are, even if we did know what the possibilities are. And then that leads people to a couple of places. One might be, well, then I'm just going to go with my gut. And the other place is just sort of, I'd just be guessing. What do I know? I'd just be guessing. What I try to argue in this book and what I try to give people tools for is that you should never accept that as an answer because there is almost nothing about which you know nothing, number one. So you should think about what is it that I know that I can apply to this? So let me give you an example of that. My computer is sitting on a table. Obviously, you can't see it. We're on Zoom. What does this table weigh?
0: It's going to weigh more than the computer, probably.
1: It's going to weigh more than the computer.
0: It's probably less than the the weight of your house.
1: Less than the weight of my house. That's great. Exactly. So this really brings up the thing because I think that people's natural answer to that is, I don't know. How could I possibly know? I'm not in your house. I don't see the table it's sitting on. I can't see what size it is. I don't know what it's made of. But what you just showed is that, no, you actually know quite a bit about the table. You know, it weighs more than my computer and less than my house. And I'm sure that if I quizzed you more, we could get even farther than that. It probably weighs less than my refrigerator, right? So we we could actually really start to narrow this down. And, And that's because I'm asking you, what is it that you know about tables, And you know enough about table that we can start to narrow that range. And anytime we narrow down the range, we're better off as decision makers because we're getting closer if we think about the continuum between no knowledge and perfect knowledge. We're moving ourselves closer on that continuum toward perfect knowledge. And then that brings us to the second point, that in not accepting I don't know as an answer, It causes you not just to look within the little stuff that fits on a head of a pin to explore what you do know about tables, but it makes you go look into that universe of stuff that you don't know to try to figure out what you could find out there that would then help you to answer the question. And now we can think about repairing those problems with the foundation as we're really critically examining the stuff we know to try to narrow the ranges down. That's going to help us spot things that might be inaccurate. But more importantly, as we go look into that universe of stuff that we don't know, we learn new stuff and we're more likely to find corrective information in there as we're trying to really answer these questions that are going to repair the cracks in the foundation of our beliefs.
0: So much of the decision trees and getting through the clutter feels so complicated. So how do you avoid... Figuring out when to apply the most rigorous parts of the tools and when you can kind of short circuit the process and maybe go with your gut or something else.
1: So really trying to show people what does a robust decision process look like, where you really are saying, let me figure out what my goals are and what my values are. What is it that I'm trying to accomplish? What are the different options under consideration? You know, what are the resources that I have in order to invest in those? then how do I think for any of those options? What are the different futures that could unfold? What's the probability of those futures occurring? So now I can look at the upside and downside potential of any option and compare those. And you better be interacting with people and having conversations about the places that there's dispersion of opinion in order to get closer to sort of the most accurate model of what's objectively true. These are subjective judgments. Because we're at least partially behind the veil of ignorance. We're partially in the state of incomplete knowledge that means that we're not necessarily going to be able to get to the exact right answer. We're trying to get close. We're trying to get to that state of you estimating the weight of a table where we're narrowing it down as much as possible. So if you do that, you're probably thinking like, okay, so I'll make a decision like three times a year, like <laughs> that seems like a lot (laughs) to do. And it's kind of like anything else, right? But before you figure out how to take a shortcut or before you figure out how that you could do a skinny version of a process, you should probably have a grasp of conceptually, what does this look like in its fully formed version? I really offer up this really fully formed, very robust process first so that people can conceptually understand what you're trying to accomplish with a decision, but then have no fear. Chapter seven comes to the rescue. (laughs) And really what it tells you is that's great, but actually mostly you should probably be speeding your decisions up. The way that you figure out when you can speed up is by really thinking broadly, what's the penalty for being less right and a little bit more wrong? So again, we go back to this idea of, you can think about the table, you were sort of offering up this range, and you said, weighs more than my computer, but less than my house. So that's a pretty broad range. So you could take your time and really go through this process and talk to a whole bunch of other people uh, and try to get that range narrowed down more so that you you get to a more accurate representation of what the table weighs. And, And you're gonna have to take some time doing that, right? But it's gonna get you to a more accurate place. But maybe for the type of decision that you're thinking about, there isn't such a big penalty for leaving that range pretty wide. And that's what we're really trying to understand in terms of figuring out when can we be fast? When can we be applying a skinnier version of the decision process in order to get us to good enough? And when is good enough okay? So there's sort of two broad things that we want to think about as we're thinking about the type of decision that we're considering that tell us how we can manage this time accuracy trade-off. And it's Impact and options. So let's take impact. So impact has to do with what I call the happiness test. And that's broadly, what is the impact of this decision on my ability to realize my long-term goals? So that's what we really care about. So the lower the impact, the more that we should be taking shortcuts and not really worrying too much about, like, are we exactly accurate about the decision? And the higher the impact, Probably we would be more likely to want to take some time and we can get at this by doing a little bit of time traveling. So I can walk through this with you in the book. I talk about going to a restaurant, which feels very weird right now. So you're going to cook dinner at home, I guess, and you're trying to decide, do I want to have chicken or fish tonight? And if we sort of think about the before times when you're in a restaurant, I think that we've all been with people who are spending a tremendous amount of time looking at the menu and they're asking like all the wait staff and they're trying to find out if they can quiz the chef. And they've got their phone out because they're looking at all the Yelp reviews, right, to try to figure out, should I actually order the chicken or the fish? But here's the interesting thing about that decision. Let's imagine that it turns out pretty badly. So we'll take food poisoning out of the equation here. But let's just assume like you choose the chicken and it's like super dry. It's terrible chicken. It's just awful. And you're immediately you're like, oh, I wish I had ordered the fish. That was the wrong choice. And you're like really sad about it, which I think is what makes you take so much time because you're anticipating that horrible feeling. So let's do a little time traveling with the happiness test. So, Ted, let's imagine that that happened. Like we had a meal. You agonized. You ordered the chicken. It was terrible. And I catch up with you in a year. And I just ask you, hey, Ted, how's your year been? Good, bad, what, indifferent, whatever, you could tell me. I think it's been a pretty good year for you, despite the macro problems that are occurring.
0: It has been a good year, yeah.
1: So I find out that actually you're pretty happy. So like, great. And now I say to you, okay, remember that meal we had a year ago when you had the really bad chicken? What effect did that have on your happiness today? None. <laughs> None. And I could actually, I could catch up with you in a month. And I could say, hey, how's your month been? You know, yeah, you've been pretty happy. So I see you and you say, yeah, actually, you know, it's been a pretty happy month for me. And I say, remember that chicken you had a month ago? And I can catch up with you in a week and I could ask the same thing. So this is a way, basically what you can think about is the longer the time horizon in which that bad outcome is going to have affected your happiness, and I'm using happiness here as just kind of a proxy for whatever it is that you're trying to advance toward, the proxy for getting us, closer to our goals rather than farther away from achieving them is a good way to think about it. But the longer the time horizon in which the bad outcome is going to have actually had an impact on whether you are happy, whether you are advancing toward your goals or not, that is going to tell you something about the impact of the decision. So we could take something like you're deciding to get married, (laughs) Well, if that turns out poorly, obviously that has a pretty deep and long-term impact generally on people's happiness. So, so that's how we can sort of sort through what's the impact of this decision in terms of how fast or slow can we go. And if we get better at that, then we can be better with these decisions that actually don't have a lot of long-term impact, but we tend to take a lot of time with. The interesting thing about what to eat in a restaurant, what to wear, what to watch on Netflix is that I think if you add just those three things together... I think it's something like between six and seven work weeks that we spend per year on those decisions, which don't have a lot of long-term impact on our happiness. But I think because they're fast cycling, we find out pretty fast whether it turned out well or poorly. And then obviously because of resulting, we substitute that in for right or wrong. We're so trying to close this information gap, try to figure out how much that table weighs exactly so that we can sort of fend off the experience of the regret when the dry chicken comes, that we actually end up cycling and spending all of this time on these decisions that actually don't have a lot of impact, where we really should just sort of be flipping coins.
0: And so how about the other side of it, the option side?
1: So what we can think about is that, in general, one of the things that you're trying to think about when you're making a decision, again, in terms of this time accuracy trade-off, is What's the opportunity cost for not choosing another option? Because you're losing out on all the gains that are associated with the options that you have decided to reject. So one of the ways to defray that opportunity cost is if you can get to that option. You can get to the option that was previously rejected. And there's a few ways you can do that. So one is if an option repeats. So this would be the chicken and fish problem is you may have a really bad lunch, but I assume you're going to get to choose something again for dinner in like four hours. And this helps us to defray opportunity costs because the decision is one that we're going to make a lot. We can choose a different option. And that's particularly good because one of the things that experience with the chicken and fish tells you is it helps you to build a better model for your next decision which is maybe I don't really like chicken that much, or at least I don't like chicken at that restaurant, or I don't like that particular preparation of chicken, which I've now is new knowledge to me that I've now found out through the experience with the world that then when I now go forward into the next decision that I'm making, I'm now going to be able to think about my options a little bit more clearly. So the more often that you're making a similar type decision, you want to go fast because it speeds up your ability to build models that will actually help your decision-making going forward terms of making those things more accurate. So that's kind of the first thing is it does the option repeat, particularly good if it's for a low impact decision, like low impact repeating options. We really like those. The second way that we can think about it is through this, what I call quittuitiveness. So the reason why I call it quittuitiveness is because there's a lot about stick to <laughs> If you stick to things, you'll be successful. I might argue that people are successful at things they stuck to which is actually very different than if you stick to something, you'll be successful. So what I try to think about is it's really good to think about how can I figure out what would be good for me to stick to. I want to make a good decision about picking the things that I'm going to stick to, which means that I have to do all this work in order to sort those options out really well. And one of the ways that I could do that is through this model of quittuitiveness. Instead of going into any decision that I make thinking, well, I have to think about this as if I were going to stick to it. Instead, think, how easy is it for me to quit? How easy is it for me to have chosen an option and then say, yeah, it wasn't for me, or this isn't working out so well, or mm, actually... And then get back to either options that you've rejected in the past, which obviously defrays opportunity costs, because I can actually get back to experience the gains that are associated with those rejected options. Or sometimes new options appear on the horizon that you hadn't considered before, and now you can just move off onto those. So this would be broadly in the category of what like Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson call two-way door decisions, or you could think about type one or type two decisions, they also call them. And it just has to do with how easy is it to quit? So in poker, how easy is it for me to cut my losses, right? Like I can fold a hand if I decide it's not going well, I can just, and then move on to the next thing. And that's another way to think about how to go fast. So now we can kind of take these all together, which is, so what's going to be the type of decision that you can go the most quickly on? If it's low impact and it's a repeating decision and it's easy to quit. So now we know like that's going to be the best thing. But even for higher impact decisions, if it's easy for you to quit and reverse course and get back to another option, then you can actually speed your decision making up simply because there isn't as big a penalty for being wrong. And then the last piece of the puzzle for optionality is can you exercise options in parallel? So do I actually have to choose between two options, which is something that people forget? They're trying to decide, like, should I take piano or guitar? And they're spending hours on this decision when it's like, well, why don't you just take a piano lesson and a guitar lesson and just sort of try to figure it out and let the world tell you? Or you're trying to decide between the chicken and the fish. And I'm like, well, I'll order the fish. You order the chicken. And now you're exercising those options in parallel. In finance, a good example of exercising options in parallel is putting on hedges. So you're saying, I think that the world is probably going to go this particular direction, but I recognize that there's a probability it goes in a different direction So I'm going to put on a position that does well when the thing that I'm predicting doesn't go well. And that's going to balance it out. And that helps defray the consequences. It helps mitigate the magnitude of what you experience when things don't go your way. So when you can do things in parallel, you really start to be able to go fast because you can exercise a whole bunch of different options at once.
0: A lot of this comes together at the end of the day into actually you're in a situation where you have to make a decision. How do you decide along the process, when's the time to say, okay, this is the right amount of information, now's the time to make a decision?
1: So first of all, the short answer is either longer or shorter than you think. And what I mean by that is if you're someone who's making a lot of decisions by your gut, probably longer than you normally take, and if you're someone who really gets caught in analysis paralysis, which I think is particularly a problem in the world that we live in right now because the world is so data rich back in the day, you couldn't be combing the Yelp reviews for for which dish to order, then you should probably actually be speeding up your decision. So we really want to get into this Goldilocks moment. And there's a couple ways to do that. One is to really think about what is the decision that I'm facing and what is the impact and the optionality that I have. And that's going to give you a clue as to whether you can go pretty fast or whether you should be slowing down. But even in the case where you've come to a place where you say, well, I should slow down, you need to sort of realize when there's Diminishing returns on the information that you might be acquiring. When we get into the category of decisions that are actually high impact, where we would want to be going a little bit slower, there's two broad categories that we can get into. One is that we get caught up in decisions where the two options that we sort of narrowed it down to are really close and we can't decide between the two of them, where clearly if it goes, poorly or if it goes well, it's going to have a big effect on our happiness and it's not going to be easy to reverse. So um, I'll give you a simple anodyne example. If you're thinking about a vacation and you're trying to decide between Paris and Rome and you just literally can't decide between those two, obviously it's an expensive vacation. There's a lot of downside to this if it turns out to be crappy and you used your vacation time and you spent your money and Probably it's not going to be a super repeatable option for you. You're not going to be able to take another vacation like that in a week. That option's not going to come up a lot. For a lot of people, that might be like a once in a lifetime. And if I see you in a year, if it's a great vacation, you're probably going to have a lingering effect on your happiness. So we know that that's going to be pretty high impact. So what happens to people in that situation is they'll get to the point where they really can't decide between the two. And they get into this endless loop of like trip advisor and (laughs) asking everybody they know who's already been to those places, trying to distinguish those really small differences. And I think the clue we can get to figuring out how not to spend so much time and to actually move on and figure out how long should I be spending on this decision is to realize that if I asked you, well, what if you were deciding between a trip to Paris and a week spent in a place that cans fish parts? You'd be like, well, obviously I would choose the trip to Paris. What are you talking about? Like, that's a stupid question. And that actually reveals what's causing this decision to be so hard. And it's that as we think about that decision process, Paris and Rome are awfully darn close. That whatever sort of the expected value is measured in happiness is, for those two options, that they must be abutting. And then we end up thinking that we should be spending our time trying to parse those little differences apart. And there's kind of two problems with that. One is that we can't do it. Our decision acuity when we're dealing with subjective probabilities and things that haven't happened yet and things like, well, maybe the weather will be bad in one place or another that we literally have no control over, so there's a lot of luck involved. We're not actually ever gonna be able to know for sure which is the better option. All we determined is that they're close. And even if we could determine it, it's a bad use of our time because they are so close. That you're probably going to be kind of about the same happiness either way, at least in expected value. And so you should probably move on to other things that may have a deeper impact on your long-term happiness. We can get to that by saying, is there really a piece of information that I could know or that I could find out outside of actually experiencing the vacation, which I don't have a time machine, that would actually cause me to know for sure which thing I should choose. And when the answer to that question is no, just flip a coin. Now, what's interesting is that we can take that into very high impact decisions where we just aren't 90% sure that it's the right choice. So let's say that we're sort of considering an option and we're kind of to the point where we're like 60 or 70% on that option. The other ones are clearly at that point not as good. But instead of thinking about those options relative to each other, it's obvious that A is better than B. But when you examine A and you say, but I'm only 60% on it. That's when we start to really wanna go and find more stuff out, which is often not gonna help us because it's not actually gonna flip those options in relation to each other. It's not gonna all of a sudden make B look amazing. We can ask the same question as we do in the really close call situation, which is this. Is there a piece of information that I can find out that would actually make it so that some other option became clearly better than the option that I'm considering? And you'd be surprised. Most of the time, the answer is no. In those rare cases when the answer is yes, very often it's too expensive. But then if the answer is it's not too expensive and there is something I could go find out that would actually cause me to change my mind here, then go find that information out. So what I love about this process is it mostly gets you to be much more comfortable with these kind of like 60 or 70 percenters, which I think is that zone where people get really hung up and they want to go clean up and find out that extra information that would get them to the extra bit of certainty. But because you're actually going for this process, it slows down the people who are going with their gut. Well, I just think this option's great because my gut tells me so. But if you actually say, but is there information that would cause you to change your mind? Now that causes them to slow down. And those gut people are going to answer yes a lot more often than the people who are in the analysis paralysis camp. Because the people in the analysis paralysis camp have already probably found out the information that's relevant, whereas the people in the gut camp haven't. And so this helps you to sort of move into that Goldilocks zone.
0: There are a few things you talked about in the book that are different mental models from how a lot of people approach either the world or decision making. And so one of those, of course, is the power of negative thinking. We all understand the power of positive thinking, but as you talk about in the book, there are times where that's not quite the right way to model decisions.
1: Yeah. So could we talk about Star Wars for a second? Sure. So the first Star Wars, I hope that you'll recall that evil empire has created the Death Star. And Luke Skywalker on this journey sort of discovers the force and figures out that old Ben Kenobi is actually quite something. And... If you recall, Princess Leia, like her whole thing is that she's stolen the plans for the Death Star and put them in R2-D2, and then these then get to the rebels. So Darth Vader is perfectly well aware that these plans have been stolen. And you may recall that he's talking to the commander and saying, we need to actually be combing over these plans. And the commander very haughtily says to Darth Vader, the Death Star is impenetrable. It's completely invulnerable. It can be blown up in no attack. There's no way to actually penetrate it. And I don't know if you remember, but Darth Vader then uses the force to choke the guy.
0: Is that what you're suggesting in decision-making processes?
1: I think that that leadership style might create some HR complaints. (laughs) So I'm not recommending it. But what I will say is that he did have something kind of really right there, which was the idea that believing that this thing that you've created is impenetrable to failure. It's not a really great way to make sure that you succeed, but rather that they needed to be combing over the plans as if they were the rebels to try to figure out if they were to fail, how might that happen? Because of course, the, the point of the movie is that we figure out exactly how that happens. Luke flies his, I think it was an X-wing, into that little tunnel and hits that port and just the right spot and creates a chain reaction that actually blows the thing up. So while there aren't a lot of things that I would recommend about Darth Vader's leadership style, I think that he really understood the contrast between the power of positive thinking and the power of negative thinking. So we've heard a lot about positive thinking. So basically, if we think about what the power of positive thinking is, it's set a really positive goal. And then as you imagine your path to that goal, imagine yourself succeeding along the way. The kind of ultimate and very strange expression of the power of positive thinking is this book called The Secret. So this was an Oprah Winfrey's Book Club selection, which caused me to just have a huge connection fit. And essentially, it's really the power of positive thinking on steroids, kind of taking to its most extreme expression, which is that your thoughts have a magnetic quality that attract the things that you are thinking to you. So if you imagine yourself in heavy traffic in the morning, then you shall be in heavy traffic in the morning. And We can work backwards from that, which is if you are in heavy traffic, you must have imagined negative things that would cause you to be in heavy traffic. Likewise, if you imagine the love of your life giving you a diamond ring, that will also come to you and happen for you. So while this mechanism for how it is that thinking positively would create positive things, or thinking negatively might create negative outcomes for you, Uh, while that mechanism is kind of crazy, that causal mechanism that they're thinking about is really absurd, the fact that they're thinking about that as a causal relationship is not absurd, not when you think about it in the scope of this literature, that somehow positive thoughts create success and negative thoughts create failure is completely uncontroversial in the space of that literature. So the way that I think about it, though, is the difference between a paper map and an app like Waze. What is a paper map doing? It's saying, here's this destination we want to get to. Because by the way, I have no quibble with set positive goals. I think that that's actually incredibly important. But we don't want to confuse the route planning with the destination planning. You figure out where you want to go. And then when you look at a paper map, it's like the power of positive thinking. Oh, look at these clear roads. I'm going to go on this road and then everything's going to be great and I'm going to get to my destination on time just fine. But why is Waze so powerful? Because it says, here's the destination you want to get to and I'm going to show you all the ways that you're going to fail on the way to your destination. I'm going to figure out where the road closures are. I'm going to figure out where there's heavy traffic. I'm going to figure out where there's (laughs) a policeman waiting with a speed trap. I'm going to figure out where there's an accident that's going to slow you down on your way and so it's really an absolute instantiation and like an app form of the power of negative thinking because we all use ways, we don't use paper maps when we're trying to navigate to actual routes because this allows us then to see where those failure points might be in a way that we can address them in advance before coming up against the road closure and trying to figure out what to do at that moment, before coming up against the traffic and trying to figure out what to do at that moment. Before getting pulled over by the policeman, trying to figure out what to do at that moment. So, what I think is happening when we think about the power of positive thinking is that we're all using paper maps and we should be using ways for decision making.
0: What are some of the tools or techniques that you can use in decision making that are the equivalent of ways?
1: What we want to do is be engaging in something called mental contrasting. So let me explain what that is. This is something that's been very well studied, in particular by a woman named Gabrielle Odenjin, who's at NYU. And what she suggests is that if you can think about the obstacles that might be in your way ahead of time, that you will actually be more likely to succeed. So generally, we want to be instantiating this idea of mental contrasting into our own decision-making. So I know that you've had Gary Klein on this podcast. I really recommend that people go listen to that episode. And he talks a lot about premortems. That would be the kind of tool that we would be talking about. So just to remind people with a premortem, so I have a goal, let's say, and you imagine at some point in the future and I failed to reach that goal. And you're asking yourself, why? Why was it that I didn't reach my goal? And now notice your goal is still positive. I wanna make that very clear. And I also wanna make it clear that whether it's a premortem or mental contrast you're not saying i think i'm going to fail you're saying if i were to fail why would that happen so that i may have a higher probability of succeeding with gary klein you basically you think about a goal at some point in the future i failed to reach that goal why did that happen now i suggest in this book that you take that slightly further First of all, you can think about it with specific decisions, and you can kind of think about what's the reasonable time for this decision to play out. So I'm thinking about hiring somebody. I can think about it's a year from now, and the person has turned out not to be a really good fit for the company. Why do I think that might happen? That'd be one thing that I could do. But also, I really like to think about those reasons for failure divided into two categories, our own decision-making and luck. So I just like to really make sure that we've got those two categories separate. And the reason why I like to do that is because I feel like when we're thinking about failure, we tend to focus on the luck elements. When we also do this kind of mental time travel exercise in order to figure out how to implement the power of negative thinking, I'm going to tend to focus on reasons that have to do with bad luck that I might fail. And so I really like to divide that up. So when I'm working with groups... I like them to give me up to five reasons that they failed that has to do with their own decision-making and up to five reasons that they failed that had to do with their own luck. You can do things to avoid both of those types of obstacles, but the things that you might do would be different.
0: And what are some of the simple things in each of those categories?
1: So for your audience on the luck side, you can hedge. That's literally the simplest way to deal with bad luck that might lie on the horizon, but you wanna get a really clear view of those points of luck that might really negatively affect you. Because if you can get a hedge on, if you can get a hedge at the right price on that's going to mitigate the impact of that bad luck occurring, why wouldn't you want to do it? And a lot of times I think that there are hedges that are available to us that we miss because we haven't actually gone through these processes of imagining the way that we might fail due to just things kind of not going our Way. And we know that when we think about like illusion of control, for example, we think when we're imagining our own success that the role of luck will be less than it actually is. So we really want to think about how to get good hedges on. And then the other thing that you can do that is just really incredibly valuable is think about how would I react if this bad luck were to occur? Because in the moment of experiencing the bad luck, like if I were to lose a hand of poker, I'm not going to be at my decision-making best because I'm going to be pulled into the emotional parts of my brain, which is not where rational thoughts live. So by imagining in advance what your plan of action is, if there's a downturn, if the downside realizes, you're actually going to tend to be acting more rationally. You're going to be prepared, and that's going to allow you to be more nimble rather than to be reactive. So that would be kind of on the luck side, if we saw the luck. On the case of it's your own decision side, Well, you can think about how can I reduce the chances that I'm gonna make those decisions? And there's a variety of ways that you can do that. Probably the most effective is some form of a Ulysses contract or a pre-commitment contract. There's a variety of the ways that we could implement those. Some would be putting an actual physical barrier in place. So if I didn't wanna eat after six o'clock, I could put a timed lock on my refrigerator. That would be one. Obviously that's pretty substantial. But even something as simple as declaring my intentions to another human being so that I have made a commitment to somebody else. So I say, Ted, I'm really having trouble during this pandemic because I'm eating too many donuts because I'm super stressed. So I'm going to tell you, I'm declaring my intentions that I'm going to cut that part of my diet out. And then you'll check in with me. And because I know that that check-in is going to occur, that is essentially creating a pre-commitment. So that would be in terms of raising barriers. It could go all the way from a lock on my fridge to just declaring my intentions. And then you also want to think about how could I lower barriers to those types of decisions? So if I want to eat healthy and in the before times when we actually went to work, I could pack healthy food. I could keep healthy snacks in my desk. I could do all sorts of things that just make access to that stuff easier.
0: When I try to translate this over to how people think about some investment decisions, whether it's low barriers or higher barriers, there's always this question with a, a manager, a hedge fund manager, you know, stock picker, about sticking to their style or being flexible. And you can imagine both of those scenarios, like you have low barriers because you want flexibility, but maybe your clients think you should have high barriers so you stick to you're just a value guy. Or how do you think about where you make that decision
1: So this is a little complicated, so let me try to break this apart bit by bit. To the point of if we were to actually implement negative thinking and harness its power, one of the things that we would find in terms of points of failure is going outside of our circle of competence. And we know that this happens all the time. There's all sorts of things having to do with the halo effect. So the halo effect would be Ted is an amazing value investor, so I assume that you'll be incredible as a Series A venture capitalist. Now, obviously, that's absurd. I shouldn't assume that those skills are going to transfer, but we assume that because you're an amazing one thing, you'll be kind of amazing in another. Einstein's incredible at physics, so he'll be great at picking people to hire, what? So we know that this is actually a really big point of failure. And as we do these kind of premortem exercises or these mental contrasting exercises, this is one of the things that we'll see. So we want to think in advance about what is the categories of decisions that can cause us to fail. And what we don't want to do is make a decision individually as the decision is in front of us. So when we're actually facing a choice, generally that's when we're at our decision-making worst because that's when the most rationalization can happen. Because we're not seeing sort of the long-term or our long-term goals, so we have an investment opportunity that comes across our desk, which would be outside of our normal circle of competence, but it just feels really, really attractive to us. And we're much more able to then rationalize that, no, this should be an exception. And it has to do with those kind of exceptions to the rules, and we don't want to be making those exceptions all the time. So what I recommend is that you identify in advance what those categories of things are that you wanna be making certain types of decisions about and make a category decision. So I'll give you a very simple example of a category decision and why you might wanna implement it. Let's say that I would really like to not be eating meat. I kind of have two ways that I could deal with that. I could make an intention that my goal is to eat less meat. Now, notice that means that every single time that I'm making a decision about food, I have to make a brand new decision about whether to eat meat. And each of the times that I make that decision is a possible point for me to fail. And particularly because as I'm looking at that juicy, delicious steak, I'm much less likely to be in a good decision-making mind in thinking about how that fits into the scope of decisions that I might make. But if instead I say, I'm a vegan, Notice that I've made a category decision, which is kind of a form of pre-commitment where I've said, I just don't eat meat, period. So every time I come across a meal, there's really kind of no decision to be made because I've already made that decision. So the first thing is figure out what your competencies are. And as you're going in, say, I know that in the future, I'm gonna be tempted to sort of move outside of these competencies. So I'm gonna make a category decision These are the types of investments that I will consider. And if it's outside of my circle of competence, I actually won't consider it, not in that moment. But what has to go along with that is what we talked about before, which is the ability to incorporate new information into your models. So it's not that when I make a decision about what type of investments I'm willing to consider or the model that I'm willing to use in terms of making those decisions, that that is a decision that I should be making for the next 20 years because the world will change. So we wanna make category decisions, but then also have check-ins where we're making sure that we're colliding with other people's perspectives so that we can see when we might wanna change our model of the world, when we might want to develop new competencies, when we might wanna reject an old way of investing in favor of a new one, and then create a new category decision. So this would really be the way to implement that kind of idea of strong convictions loosely held, is make a category decision, hold that strongly, but then have a secondary process that's going on where you're really trying to think about the world and incorporate information in a rational way that will allow you to maybe alter those categories in the longer term as kind of a secondary stream.
0: It feels like the difference is subtle between not having the category decision made and stepping outside of it or shifting the category. How do you more clearly define what is an appropriate category regime shift as opposed to just, well, if I say I'm a value investor and I love a growth stock. So it's one thing to say, I'm a value investor. I don't invest in Google. But what about, well, the definition of value needs to change. And now I've changed my category, so it includes Google.
1: So I'm going to tell you a story I think that will help you with this. A psychologist named Leon Festinger did a really seminal study back in the 50s, I think. He and his collaborators embedded themselves in a cult. And the cult believed this really weird thing which was that the world was going to be destroyed on this certain day at midnight, and when that happened, because they were true believers, aliens were going to come down and rescue them. Seems reasonable, right? Yeah, sure. (laughs) Sure. So they were very interested in what was going to happen at midnight on this particular day. So midnight happens, and the aliens don't come, and the world doesn't get destroyed. So there's some confusion among the followers. They went into the other room and they realized that the clock in their room was a couple of minutes fast. So they said, aha, They very quickly shifted. We see in the other room that this clock has not yet struck midnight. So obviously it will happen then. So that was kind of the first shift. So they go into the other room and that clock strikes midnight and the world is not destroyed and the aliens do not come. So you would think they would then reject their model of the world. But they do not. Instead, they say, well, we were such true believers that we have saved the world. So I say this in the sense of we always want to be very cautious about these kind of redefinitions of things in order to fit our models. Because it's a really dangerous place to be because we are cognitively very, very flexible in terms of shifting definitions and sort of justifying just this once or how could we fit this thing we really wanna do into the world of things that we do wanna do. So I actually have a tool in the book called the Dr. Evil Game that is meant to address exactly this problem. So let me tell you what the Dr. Evil Game is. So do you remember Dr. Evil, Austin Powers, right? But we've had lots of Dr. Evils in many, many movies. So we have Dr. Evil, and I want you to imagine something, Ted. Dr. Evil has control of your brain. And this is what Dr. Evil is trying to do. Dr. Evil is trying to make Ted make decisions that will cause him to fail in reaching his goal. That is what Dr. Evil is trying to do. But we know Dr. Evil is an evil genius. So Dr. Evil is not going to make you make any old decisions like you want to lose weight and Dr. Evil is going to make you tuck in publicly into two dozen donuts because clearly everybody around you will notice that this is a complete failure of your decision making and you will notice that this is a complete failure of decision making and Dr. Evil will be caught. So Dr. Evil wants to be successful and both not be caught. And so what he does instead, he says, I'm going to make Ted make decisions that will surely make him fail in the long run but any individual example of that decision will be essentially undetectable. Why? Because you will be able to rationalize it. You will be able to give a perfectly reasonable explanation to yourself and another human being as to why you actually made this decision just this one time. And what I challenge people to do with the Dr. Evil game is as they're thinking about goal that they're trying to reach, Think about what those Dr. Evil decisions are. What are the things that they're going to be able to rationalize on any individual instance that will cause them to fail? So let me now ground this in a couple of examples. I'm trying to eat healthier, but it's my kid's birthday party. And it's just like there's pizza and cake around. And obviously, I don't want to not eat the cake. Maybe it would set a bad example for my kids for one thing. I don't know. Or, or, you know, whatever. It's their birthday party. I'm just celebrating. And then the next week I had a really bad breakup. So yeah, I'm tucking into a pint of Ben and Jerry's, but like I had a really bad breakup, give me a break. What do you want me to do here? I'm really sad. You can imagine that each individual time, Ted, if you asked me, you said you wanted to eat healthier, why did you have cake? If I said to you, well, I mean, it was my kid's birthday party. You'd be like, okay. If I said to you, well, I was at work and it was my coworkers was celebrating something and they brought in cupcakes and everybody was eating them. I don't want to be rude. You know, I was sad and I had a Ben and Jerry's get off my back, right? Unless you saw those decisions in the aggregate, you would not spot them. Here's a real, real world example of this. Let's talk about the NFL and their fourth down decisions. So we know that they don't follow the analytics. So how do we know that this is the work of Dr. Evil? What the Dr. Evil game, that decision tool is trying to get you to do is think about the effects of these things in the aggregate as opposed to a one-time donut that you might eat. So let's think about what happens with these fourth down decisions. Here's a question that I have for you. You certainly know that they choose not to go for it on fourth down a lot, right? And coaches will cite these in-game reasons for that. But have you ever seen a coach go for it on fourth down when the analytics tell them not to? I don't think so. So what's happening here is They're looking at the analytics, and the analytics are telling them to go for it on fourth down. And for some reason, there's obviously, they're concerned if they fail, this might be viewed as the reason why they lose the game. Maybe the owner isn't quite on board with these types of decisions, or the fans are going to blow up. There's all sorts of pressures on them in terms of those kinds of unusual decisions. So they choose not to go for it when it's close, sometimes when it's not close, And they always say things like, the running back wasn't performing, the line wasn't holding, momentum wasn't going our way. But if it's not a Dr. Evil decision, then what you should see is sometimes when it's very marginal or even maybe clear that you shouldn't go for it, at least according to the analytics, that they would go for it because the running back was performing great and the line was really holding and momentum was going their way. But what we can see is it doesn't go both ways. And that's why we know it's Dr. Evil sabotaging your ability to achieve your goals. So I would consider that issue of, you know, but it's Google. And you have to sort of think about that in, is this really a one-off or is this something that I'm doing over time? And if I were continue to make this type of decision with this type of rationale, would there be any stock that I wouldn't invest in? Would I lose all of my boundaries? Would I start to really stray outside of my circle of competence? And I think the answer to that is yes, in the same way that the NFL does or your diet doesn't work out. That's why I really encourage people to sort of engage in this thought experiment and then set up these category decisions in advance and say, if you really want to alter the category, it has to come out of the secondary stream that isn't running at the moment of the decision. Investing is actually one of the greatest places to translate it to if you have competencies in a particular type of investing, just straying out of that category is just a really bad idea. If you specialize in REITs, you probably shouldn't be straying out of that unless you have a secondary stream, right? Unless you like hire someone or you create new models or all of that kind of thing. And we see that people do that all the time though, that they stray outside of that because that particular investment is just so juicy. You see that in venture a lot where someone specializes in a particular series And then they're straying out of that series, not as a follow on, but like just as like a new investment. Like the idea that an angel investor would be great at Series C is pretty absurd. Except that what we see in the moment is that people feel like they are. Because it's very easy to convince yourself when you see something in front of you that's really attractive. And in investing, there's all sorts of donuts and cakes and stuff like floating around. And then just like with the NFL, there's also fans, which are your customers. So we have both things going on. We have the really nice, shiny, attractive or sweet treat or whatever that's sitting in front of us that we're really tempted to sort of shift our boundaries, our categories in order to incorporate. But we also have fans. We also have GMs who are putting pressure on us that can cause us to not make particularly rational decisions as well. And I think that we're trying to balance both of those things. And we know that both of those pressures are going to create points of failure that we want to be thinking about well in advance.
0: So a lot of the power of negative thinking and some of these decisions could be construed as based on an individual checking themselves. In a lot of investing, the decisions get made in groups, sometimes with a committee, sometimes just a group of peers. How do you think about making good decisions in groups?
1: So I really dedicate almost a whole chapter to this question, chapter nine. Here's the danger with groups is when we think about inside, outside view, what we're really talking about is how are you kind of getting outside of your own perspective in order to see the world from somebody else's perspective? And we can include in that actually, how are you actually learning new things? And we know that a lot of the facts that you don't know live in other people's heads. And we know that a lot of the perspectives, that the ways of seeing the world are the same data that you're looking at that might be different. Lives in other people's heads. So we have this intuition that group decision making should be better than individual decision making. Why? Well, it's the old aphorism two heads are better than one. And so now we have a group that's five heads or six heads, and we should have lots and lots of different perspectives colliding, and this should actually produce better decision making. But what we know is that generally isn't true. What generally happens is that the decisions that come out of a group process are are not really necessarily better. It's just that you have much more confidence in them because you have this perception that group decision-making is higher quality. And that's actually a really bad combination, just more confidence in a decision that isn't really much better. Sometimes it's worse. So what's going on here? Well, I do think that we can agree that if you could surface all of that dispersion of opinion, all of the ways that everybody's views in the group diverge from one another's, that we would actually end up with a more informed group that should produce a better decision. The problem is that the way that groups generally interact with each other doesn't actually surface that dispersion. So I'll just give you two simple examples. There was some wonderful work by Richard Zeckhauser and Dan Levy at Harvard. They had classes, and they had one class answer questions by raising their hand, which is sort of the time-honored way of polling the room. And the other class answered questions by a clicker, just using a clicker that was private to them. And what they found with the group that was raising their hands in class was that supermajorities formed very quickly. In other words, consensus formed. Once people sort of saw consensus start to form, people were sort of going with the consensus. I think partly because one of the ways that we feel that we belong to a group or is we want things, our beliefs to be certified, and some of that is sort of certified by other people, and we want to be in the majority, and that all feels good to us because of our tribal nature. But when they had people answer by clicker, this is private, the super majorities just broke up. You didn't see these super majorities f- forming. So what we can see is that when we're having these discussions in public, that we're not really getting truly a view of what the opinions of the class are, not a true look at them. There was another study that was done where they just had people picking candidates for student council, And this is where it gets particularly distressing. There was one group where there's three candidates, and just objectively speaking, candidate A is going to be the best candidate. That's objectively speaking. They've sort of figured that out by polling people with the dossier. So there's four members of a committee, kind of like an investment committee. And each of the members gets a complete dossier on candidate A, candidate B, candidate C, And when that happens, they come in and they settle on candidate A, which is objectively the best candidate. That's all good. But what happens when each member of the committee has incomplete dossiers on each of the candidates? So your information on candidate A, some of it will overlap with mine, but some of it will be different. You might have different positives. I might have some negatives that you don't have. Same with candidate B, same with candidate C. Alarmingly, they tell us hey, just so you know, if you all share the information, you're gonna have complete information about each of the candidates, but no individual has complete information about each of the candidates. That's really what an investment committee is because everybody's coming in and they have different viewpoints and different ideas and they may have different facts and different perspectives. So what happens when those groups come in, aware that their dossiers are incomplete? They almost never pick candidate A anymore. And the reason is that once you sort of see that a consensus is forming, people really coalesce around the consensus and then all of a sudden the negative information is suppressed. So we know they have a really big problem that we have to solve. And what it really boils down to is that when individuals are interacting with each other, particularly on teams, those interactions tend toward hiding dispersion of opinion and highlighting alignment of opinion. And there's all sorts of like little ways that this can happen without realizing it. The way that we talk to each other, the way that we elicit opinions from other people hides the fact that we might disagree. So this is a little bit of a different problem. It has to do with how are you sort of interacting with the people around you, not what's the information you're seeking out, because I could be seeking out disagreement in good faith. Um, So I'm assuming like, even if there was good faith, even if I was really, really trying to find out what your opinion was, that the ways that I interact with you may actually really hide the fact that we disagree and I won't even know it.
0: What's an example of that?
1: I'll give you an example and this comes from Michael Mobison and Andrew Mobison. They were sort of going off of some work I think that was from Phil Tetlock, which was really talking about when people use natural language terms to talk about probabilities things like certainly or real possibility or that's likely or maybe, right? So we have all of these terms that imply something probabilistic, that it's not 100% to happen or 0% to happen, that it's going to be sitting somewhere in the middle, that when you use those types of terms, a lot of them, it turns out, have very broad ranges for what somebody intends in terms of the probability of something happening. So if I said to you, I think if I invest in this stock, that it's going to be up 30% by the end of the year. And you said to me, well, how likely do you think that is? And I said, well, I think it's a real possibility. We talk this way a lot. Do you want to go out to dinner tonight? Maybe. So Phil Tetlock talks about the problem is that we end up sort of talking past each other a lot of times when we use these because we don't actually realize what these terms mean in a precise way if you were to ask somebody to turn that into a point probability. So, Michael Mobison and, and Andrew Mobison decided, okay, well, we'll do a survey. We'll find out what people actually think about this. And I've got this exercise in my book that people can do actually like on their teams where I list all of those words. It's like maybe 20 something terms. And I say, okay, for yourself, write down what probability do you intend when you use that term? And then I ask people to go elicit those responses from three people independently, where you're not doing it as a group discussion, you're just asking them to independently input. And then once you've got those independent answers for each of the worlds, like compare them, then what you find is that there's these incredible spreads for even something like always and never, which is pretty amazing, because I thought always meant 100% and never meant 0%. But actually, people don't necessarily think that because they assume that sometimes people are overselling, like if you say always, or maybe even overselling themselves and just lying to themselves. So there's a lot of people who put always at 95%. But the biggest spread I ever got was on real possibility, where the range was 16% to 81%. And it wasn't like three people in the group were like up toward 80. And one person was at 16. It was actually spread out across them. This is just one of these little ways where when we speak to each other, we may think we're agreeing with each other. Because we may both agree that the term real possibility applies to the likelihood of a particular future occurring, but it turns out that we actually don't agree. So now what we can see is sort of this interaction with this process that I'm recommending. If instead of actually forecasting the probability, we use these terms, we may not know that we actually disagree about what the likelihood of that future occurring is. And then what happens is that we haven't even realized that we've collided with what might be corrective information. We have the chance now to explore the dispersion, to find out what's your model of the world that you think it's 16% and what's my model of the world that I think it's 81%. And now we can actually have a really good discussion where we're likely to get closer to ground truth through that discussion. But we never have it because we don't even know that we don't agree. So how do we solve it? Well, we can go back to what we talked about, about how do I solve it with TED individually? So if I don't want to infect TED with my beliefs, what do I need to do? I need to not offer my opinion first. This is the way I don't infect TED with my beliefs. Okay, that's all fine and good. So how do I make sure that I'm harnessing the power of a great committee? So we need to start at the beginning, which is I have to view the perspectives of the committee. So what that means is that I need to make sure that they're not presenting those perspectives, at least initially in a group setting, because otherwise we're going to have this raising your hand in class problem. So I want them to do pre-work. You figure out what is the opinion that I'm trying to elicit, what's the feedback that I'm trying to elicit from the group. So it could be in the form of pre-mortems. So maybe the group is going to be doing a pre-mortem. So maybe that's what they're going to be doing maybe I'm asking people to rate something about the investment. They read the information about the investment, all facts. I want to strip my opinion from you. So I give the facts of the matter. And then maybe I'm having them rate a bunch of stuff. On a scale of zero to five, how good is this market opportunity? If you had to imagine the future, we could do some forecasts. Maybe I'm trying to find out what do you think the probability is that this investment goes up by 25% in the course of a year, 50% in the course of a year, 5% in the course of a year, or goes down. And I'm asking you to forecast those bins maybe. So we can think about what's the form of the feedback that we're trying to elicit depending on the situation. And now I send those forms to every single person on the committee independently. They then fill those forms out independently. And I allow them also to give me a rationale why do you think this market opportunity is a four? Or Ted, why do you think this market opportunity is a two? And we wanna keep those rationales very short, one or two sentences only, just in order to get the gist. Like this is something that Phil Tetlock and Barb Mellers talk about a lot, is that you really want people to learn to be good gisters. What is the most important idea here that I'm trying to think about? So now you get all of that independently, then you put that together into one document to share with the group, prior to walking in the meeting. So now what's happened is that you see all of this dispersion because nobody in the group has heard anybody else's opinion before providing their own. And not only do you see the breadth of the opinion, but through these rationales, you're seeing the different perspectives and the different information that they may be settling on before they're talking about it. So that's step one to improving your process. Step two is that when you walk into the committee, you need to be thinking about two things. One is this idea of convey versus convince, which I'll talk about. And the other is that the goal of a really good group meeting is not to agree. And we think that the goal is agreement. We think that everybody has to walk out of that room on the same page. The goal of a great group meeting, rather, should be to inform which is very different. So it should be okay that you allow that divergence of opinion to live, to stay, because it's about informing the group, not agreeing. So let's think about how you might now run this meeting. Let's say that, Ted, you think the market opportunity is a two out of five, and Susan thinks the market opportunity is a four out of five. So I'm the facilitator of the conversation. And let's say that there's two other people who think that with you and two other people, let's say the room is divided equally and two other people who think the market opportunity is pretty good along with Susan. So the first thing I do is across all of that information that I get, there's going to be a certain amount of agreement. So the first thing I want to do is acknowledge the, the agreement. I want to say, oh, it's really good. We're all pretty much in agreement that this manager is a superstar. We've all rated that manager really highly. So that's great. So let's acknowledge that. And you can walk through the places that you agree but don't linger on it because one of the things that happens and I think the reason why we like this consensus is that when you're in a group meeting a lot of the time is spent on agreement oh you know Ted you say something and then I say oh I totally agree with Ted and let me now say it in my own words why that's such a smart idea and then the next person says yeah and I have something to add to that but we've now already surfaced the agreement. And honestly, it's a little bit uninteresting. We both believe the earth is round. OK, let's move on. And now what we want to do is see where you think it's flat. That's actually more informative. So now I look through all of these pre-votes or whatever, these forms that we filled out. And I find out the places where we have divergence. And now I say, Ted, I'm going to nominate you, because you're sort of in a group of people who think the market opportunity is a two. Could you just convey the reasons why you believe that? So you tell why you believe that. And then I can say to the other people in the group, do you have anything to add to what Ted said? Is there anything you feel like Ted didn't convey that you would really like to have conveyed in terms of why you think it's a two? And they can say that. And then the people who are on the other side of the opinion can then query you. But when they query you, it's not, you haven't thought about this or this data or you're thinking about this wrong or any of that stuff that normally happens. It's just, I didn't understand this point. Because the goal is for you to convey your opinion to them in a way that they could repeat it back to you and you would say, thank you, you said that better than me. So their goal is just to understand. Why do you believe what you do? And then I can go to Susan and I say, I'm nominating you, Susan. Can you please be the representative of the group who thinks the market opportunity is a forum? We go through the same process. So now notice everybody's informed and everybody's had the opportunity to query the other group. And that's it. There's no convincing. You're not trying to convince anybody. You're just trying to convey what you believe. And then you can give people the opportunity, do you want to change your opinion? Because they're allowed to. But if they don't, that's okay. Because the whole point of having a team is that everybody does not agree. The whole point of having a team is to allow those different perspectives to breathe. And ultimately, someone's going to be making the decision. It could be that it needs to be a majority, three to two. That's fine. But we want the decision to be as well-informed as possible, which means we need to surface the places where there's dispersion.
0: So some of the investment committees you see in these institutional portfolios, there's really two types. There's the type where, say, the chief investment officer and the team is doing the work, and then they have a committee that is very informed, may have opinions, but is effectively a sounding board. And so the investment, say, the chief investment officer is the ultimate decision maker. And that works beautifully in that situation. You have in other situations where it's really the committee who going into the meeting is not as informed, but they are the ultimate decision maker. And you could imagine if you're the chief investment officer and you and your team have done your work and you've gone through what you think is a thorough decision process, we're in a situation where you're on my committee and you're just a nudge. And I actually don't want your opinion because I don't value it. So I then, before the meeting, call you and say, hey, we're thinking about this decision. We're thinking of doing X. Does that work? I mean, it doesn't get to the point of making a good decision, objective truth, and eliciting that person's opinion, but it is sort of a psychological runaround if it works.
1: So I think, first of all, we want to think about, are they actually a nudge or are they just challenging us? Because a lot of times when a committee is coming to consensus, We don't like it when someone's pushing back at that. And if the person is in the role of the sort of person who's pushing back on it, you should kind of be grateful that that person exists because it forces you to be thinking about things from different perspectives. And like I said, it forces you to actually be able to give a rationale for why you believe what you do. You have to actually support it. You have to say, well, this is why I think the table weighs more than your computer, So I think there's a lot of value in those nudges. Now, obviously, someone who's not doing that in good faith, that's just a cultural problem where perhaps you should not have them on your team. So let me just say that. But this idea of what I sort of call being butt wide, I'm thinking about what Richard Feynman said, like you better be able to explain it to an eight year old in terms that they can understand why you're going ahead with that decision, even if they don't agree with you, which was fine. So there's an exercise that I have in my book that really shows this but why So let me explain what but why is. My five-year-old, let's say, says to me, mommy, why is the sky blue? And I went to graduate school and I understand perception. And so I give an answer that I'm pretty darn proud of myself about. And I say, well, sweetie, the sky is actually not blue. It's actually all the colors of the rainbow But the atmosphere of the earth, the air only lets our eyes see the blue color. So we think it's blue, but we know it's all the colors because you've seen a rainbow. I'm pretty proud of myself now, right? But what does my five-year-old do immediately? But why is the sky all the colors? Why does the air only let us see blue? And what happens is that I may be able to answer some of the follow-up questions, but there's a point at which I butt up against my own knowledge my own ability to know why I believe what I do. And that's really helpful for me because, first of all, my five-year-old is getting more informed in the process, which is always good because you're improving the knowledge of the committee itself. You want the knowledge ocean to rise. But also you're making me explore what it is that I actually know and don't know. Because if I can't explain it to you, then I don't really know it. I've given myself the opportunity to know my opinion better. And sometimes I've given myself the opportunity to change my mind. Because in that but why process, I may discover that something that I don't understand is actually not quite right. It might not feel so good in the moment. But it's really good for me and it's very good for the group in general because it means that the group itself becomes more educated. The group has to consider in good faith the opinion of the nudge in such a way that you can sort of come to something there. So that's kind of the first thing. The second thing is that I feel like a lot of what causes people who sort of push against, you know, are swimming upstream a little bit, like pushing against the consensus and the status quo, to in some sense, not be welcome in the group, or to self-select out, is that a lot of group interaction, I think the goal that people think that the group has is to all agree with each other in the end. That you come into the meeting and you're all supposed to be on the same page when you leave, but you don't have to all be on the same page. You might be ruling by majority and that's okay, Or it may be that the committee is meeting to discuss the information and there's actually one or two deciders. But the goal of whoever is making the decision is supposed to be to be the most informed. So that person's goal should actually just to get as many rationales on the table as possible so that they can see all of the different perspectives and not necessarily have the goals that the people who hold those different opinions need to actually agree with each other in the end. And I think that this is actually part of the really big problem with the way that groups interact.
0: I'm going to turn to some closing questions, but I have to ask you, as this book comes out, what's next for you?
1: Oh, my gosh. That's a hard one. After thinking in bets, I said I was not ever going to write another book. I think I may have said that on your podcast. I'm not sure. Uh, we'd have to go back and check the tape. I've met people who say like, I loved being pregnant. And I'm like, what's wrong with you? Like, what's there to love? I love the baby that comes from it. I sort of think about books that way. I hate being pregnant, but I love the baby that you get out of it. So I would say like, definitely not a book. But then I feel like I can't say that it's 100%. So I would say I'm 76% that I'm never writing another book. Because it's just like, it's hard. And actually, you know what's interesting about writing a book in terms of what we just talked about, that but why? Being but wide on a team, having to actually be able to convey what you believe to the point where somebody else can really understand what you are saying, a book but why's you. It makes you answer that question over and over again, but why, but why, but why? Because It's really an exploration of sort of the limits of your own understanding of things as you're trying to convey it to another person. And honestly, that's just freaking hard. And it's torturous. And you find all of these places where you really thought you had clarity and you knew what you were doing and you're an expert. And it turns out you have no idea what you're talking about and what you believe is gobbledygook. And that's a tough challenge. So I don't know if I'm going to write another book. I would say I'm a favorite not to. I guess I said I was 76% not to. So like we can make a market. And if you want to give me three to one, let's talk about it. So what is next for me? Well, I mean, I'm actually really enjoying the consulting I'm doing where I'm really taking some of these things we talked about with making conversations on teams great, really facilitating great conversations on those teams, making meetings more efficient, helping teams to really understand how to access and map the beliefs and knowledge of the individual members of those teams and really celebrate the dispersion as opposed to lingering on the agreement, which is mostly what happens. I'm really enjoying that really personal experience where I really get to work with teams to try to make their decision-making so much better, their conversations better, really trying to help them to create a better evidentiary record so that you can start to close these feedback loops in this In this way that actually really helps to resolve the paradox of experience. And I've been really loving that, like really, really loving that really deep dive. So I think probably more of that on the horizon for sure.
0: But to that effect, I know that in the past, some people have reached out to me to get you. What's the easiest way for people to reach you if they want to?
1: Well, for the near future in my house. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so hopefully I'm pretty easy to get in touch with. You can follow me on Twitter at Annie Duke. And then you can go to my website, which is just www.annieduke.com. And there's a contact form on there. Hopefully we can start a conversation.
0: Well, I can't let you go without a couple of new closing questions, or at least ones you haven't answered before. So here we go. What's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family?
1: Oh, tennis. That's such an easy one for me. I love tennis so much.
0: So, what is it about tennis?
1: The thing I love about tennis is that it's like playing poker but chasing a ball. So, first of all, there's a lot of luck involved in tennis, certainly at the level that I play it at. <laughs> you know, just in terms of like, well, I miss hit that ball, but ooh, look, I won the point anyway. Tennis is so incredibly strategic, and you can think about it in the same way that you do poker, which is like the good tennis players just are accumulating assets. And then they're thinking both strategically and tactically about when to be using the particular assets that they have. And the more assets that you have and the more adept you are so what your skill at executing on each asset is, the better your game is. And then you also have to build like this really strong model of your opponent, not just in terms of in general, like in a broad sense, what kind of ball do they like or not like and how can I sort of think about how to dig into those weaknesses or avoid their strengths, but even down to the littlest thing, like if you're not watching the ball off their racket, that ball is going to come at you too fast for you to do any strategic planning at all. So you have to actually be really thinking about in a large sense, that marriage of the inside and outside view that you have to be standing in that player's shoes all the time in order to understand the kinds of decisions that you should be making in relation to them. So I just find it really for the type of thinking that I like to do It's like this collision of the physical with that kind of mental work that I really enjoy. So tennis is just my fave.
0: And there's no more poker.
1: So I played a couple of little just sort of for funds. When the quarantine, when the lockdowns first started, my sister and brother-in-law put together a little something like a play money site with some people. And we were sort of Zooming and playing on Friday nights. But that's about the extent of the poker that I've played any time in the recent past.
0: All right, what's your most important daily habit?
1: Well, there's kind of two things that I want to say, but I think they're a little bit related to each other. One is making my bed. The reason why it's such an important habit for me is that I feel like in order to do really good creative thinking, it's good to have your environment be orderly so that your mind can be a little bit more chaotic. And so keeping things orderly around me, I think allows me to sort of live in some of my more chaotic thoughts, which I feel like lead me to some of these cool places where I get to test some of these ideas against the world. The second choice that I had was exercising. And again, it it all just kind of has to do with like, what's the quality of your thoughts, which I think in the end is really what the quality of your life is. And also just sort of what's the quality of the physical body that those thoughts are living in, which I think also has a lot to do with how much you enjoy life and what the quality of your life is. And so I just really make a commitment to be moving my body because I just think it helps all of that.
0: What's your biggest pet peeve?
1: Well, I think my kids would tell you that, you know how you have like small salad forks and then regular size forks? For some reason, when my kids set the table, they always put the salad size forks on the table. And then I always look at them and I'm like, can you give me like an actual adult-sized human fork, please? (laughs) So I think they would tell you that was probably my biggest pet peeve, which is, I just like, I want the right size fork. I mean, is that so horrible? You know what I think? I think that in a broad sense, my biggest pet peeve is when people don't allow nuance into the conversation. There's so many false dichotomies and it's obviously really antithetical to the way that I kind of think about the world, you know, not just like you're somewhere in between perfect information and no information. You're generally somewhere in between right and wrong. You're somewhere in between 100% and 0%. And allowing that another person might have a different perspective or that we might agree on 90% of things and there's like 10% that we don't agree on and that doesn't mean that we're on opposite sides of the fence, right? Or That's probably my biggest pet peeve right now is that I feel like we're losing room for nuance and everything's being put into these dichotomies, which is so, in my perspective, really sort of opposite to what's going to create good decision making. How about
0: your biggest pet peeve from what you've seen inside investment organizations that you've worked with?
1: I think that particularly when people are very successful, it's particularly uncomfortable for them to imagine that there might be ways that they could really improve their decision process. And I think that the reason is that then there's all of a sudden you open up a counterfactual world where maybe they did even better. And in some ways, I think that makes them feel like they've turned a win into a loss, right? Like I thought I was so great and I won so much. And now you're telling me that maybe I left like half a BIP on the table and then that's going to make me sad because it's going to turn out that I wasn't the best decision maker in the world. And so a lot of times when I'm sort of working with teams and exploring a relationship with them, and I'm talking to kind of the decision makers, they aren't particularly open-minded to the idea that they might be able to clean things up. And very often they'll bring me in and say, I want you to work with the people that are below me, but I'm fine. And then when you suggest to them that, well, maybe there are things that we could do that could actually make your decision process better, they sort of swat you away and I have to say that that's like just a really big pet peeve for me because I think that for one thing, it's a little heads like, how are you successful if you think that way? But I think that we all need to be exploring as human beings, but they refuse to be open minded to the idea that maybe they could be doing better.
0: All right. Last one. What's the biggest mistake that you've made and what did you learn from it?
1: Oh my gosh. How much time do you have? I make mistakes every single day and some of them are quite large. So... I will tell you this, it's probably shocked people, but I think it was a huge mistake for me to leave academia and become a poker player. Honestly, I don't even know that I was like making an orderly decision in any way, shape or form. At the end of graduate school, for those who don't know, I was suffering with some stomach issues that made me take time off and then I sort of needed to fill in the gaps money-wise. So I had a fellowship when I went to graduate school. And then when I went to take a year off, this was literally right at the end, I completed all my PhD work. I just needed something where I could have flexible hours and I didn't want to reboot a new career and blah, blah, blah. And so like, I, I started playing poker and then I never stopped. And I don't know that I ever like made a conscious decision to never stop. I think I just sort of didn't go back. And I didn't get my PhD, which like I was already done with. Literally, like I did the research for my dissertation and I didn't do it. And I look back at that and I'm just like, that was a mistake. Like that was completely absurd. I don't even want to call it a decision because I can't remember making a decision, actually thinking about the decision to not go back to graduate school and play poker. So I honestly think like that's the biggest mistake I ever made in my life, regardless of how things turn out. I think I got so lucky that it ended up turning out well. It's like absurd. So what's my biggest learning from that is good things can happen from really dumb decisions. I guess like so sometimes things work out for you, but I think that it's part of the reason why I write these books because I have had moments in my life where I so completely didn't execute on a good decision process. Now some of them have worked out for me, but that's neither here nor there. I would have been a lot better off had I actually thought that through there's some possibility I may still have decided to play poker, but I think that it would have looked more like I'm going to take a leave of absence and I'm going to try poker out for a while and I'll circle back to academia or something. But there would have been a decision involved. So I do think it's part of why I write these books is that I just think it's so important to have a real process in place. It's actually part of the reason why I co-founded the Alliance for Decision Education, just because I don't think that we teach these things. I was better than the average bear at making decisions. And here I made this huge life choice without really having a process to make the decision that made any sense. And so, you know, what we're trying to do at the Alliance is really bring decision education into K through 12. So the people really understand how would you actually go about making a decision? How do you think probabilistically about the world? How do you make sense of your own experience? How do you think about what you know and then apply that to what to do? there's only luck in the quality of your decisions that are going to determine the way your life works out. So, so shouldn't we be spending a little bit more time on that in a way that I didn't?
0: Annie, thanks so much for all the time. Always fascinating. And until the next time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time.